the more attention you pay to it, the more it becomes yours. This is the Yoakum Swank Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Nick Winkleman. And uh, the say a nugget of the day fits this podcast more than any other one. Uh, I think I'd be short selling it because today Coach Winkleman talks all about attention and how our job as coaches is to direct that attention. Coach is the author of the new book, The Language of Coaching, which kind of dives into all of his thoughts in a, a much deeper sense in our podcast today. But as you'll see through our podcast, the the, the thought process that goes into Coach's approach to training is really, really cool. He, he talks about peeling back the layer and peeling back the layers of coaching and how much more there is once you actually start peeling. And I, I feel like we talk about a little bit on this podcast that many times we stop peeling. Many times we just stop with the, the, the methods and we're at that first level of the onion. And there's just so much more there. There's so much more that matters for our athletes. And there's so much more that we could get out of our coaching. And rather than just yelling and saying cues and pretending that we're doing our job, Let's start to peel back these layers. Let's start to dive into what coaching actually is. So hopefully you guys get as much out of this podcast as I did. Thank you guys for listening. All right. Well, coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here today. Uh, Austin, the pleasure is mine. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got to the point you're at today and kind of why you think the way you think? Yeah, well, I'll try to give the short story so we can focus mostly on the why. Better yet, I'll try to embed the why in the story. So uh, I've been a strength conditioning coach now for 17 years, uh, but but chiefly I'm interested in helping people uh, optimize performance. And for me, I, I define performance as as achieving the goals you set out for yourself. And, and as a strength coach, the vast majority of people I work with have physical goals. But as I get older, I'm realizing I'm more generally interested in helping people achieve any variety of goal. And, and so that's kind of pivoted me into the coach education world and helping people with their careers. But if we look at if we look at the why, you know, I'll share a story here. Uh, my very first job, I was a strength conditioning coach, more or less in training. It was at a local gym, you know, just working the desk, making sure people didn't drop weights on their feet and, and helping do some light programming. And, you know, for me, this being my first gig, I just fell in love with, with the ethos and the environment of being around people trying to get better physically. And, and inevitably, you come to learn that the gym is as much about the mind, if not more uh, than the body. And around that same time, I was in high school and I was working with my high school strength coach, which was a luxury, to be honest, at the time in the late 90s. His name was Rudy. And very much so, those who have seen the, the Notre Dame movie, Rudy, he's that kind of guy. You know, he was all about the person inside of the player and helping people become the best version of themselves. You know, I probably didn't appreciate or realize that at the time. But now upon reflection, I feel the, the lessons learned from him were far more above the neck than they were below. 
So working with this guy, though, I got to see someone who every single day, he volunteered his time, Austin, and he just committed to helping these individuals, myself included, become the best version of themselves. He would go to every sporting event. You know, he, he would he would know your birthday. He would know your mom, your dad, if you had a sister or a brother, whatever it was. He truly cared. He invested. And so for me, it was, I, was, I was 17. I'd been working with him for a couple of years. I was starting to think about college, and I had to decide what I wanted to do. And for me, it was a no brainer. I wanted to go into exercise science. I wanted to become a strength conditioning coach for the pure reason that, that I was on the receiving end of someone who by definition truly was a coach, someone who took you from where you are to where you want to be across all dimensions, holistically of, of human performance. And I knew that if I could give the world what this coach had given me, then that would be a life both examined and fulfilled. And so I'd say, Austin, that I really haven't pivoted from that viewpoint. I just continue to try to find better ways of developing myself so I can leverage those learnings to help others. Yeah, that, that, that's really awesome, Coach, because I have a very similar story of my high school head coach being the exact same person that you just talked about. And, and it's kind of cool because <laughs> this is like the, 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 the Twitter battles they see on it on Twitter and like Instagram and everything about like, this is the method, this is the method, this is the method. And like the two coaches that you and I are talking about, and I'm not sure about the methods that he used, but the coaches that like my high school head coach, like if you look at the methods, like you would be like, well, that's probably not the best method. But like what I remember of him and what I've used not method wise, not sets and reps rise, but just life wise, like has pushed me so much farther forward than if he was a, a person that didn't care and talked about the sets, sets and reps all the time, you know? Uh, well, a hundred percent, you know, the methods are the map, right? It, it's the structure, but ultimately that what, as we oftentimes call it, is nothing without a how. You still need someone who can who can know how to navigate the mountain. You still need someone who knows how to use the, the crampons and the climbing equipment, right? Methods will only take you so far. And, and for me, methods are the knowledge, but the wisdom is in the application, the, the delivery, the translation. And that's what the greats do. And, and, and for me, ultimately, that's why we remember someone, not for what they did, but for how they did it. Yeah. And that, again, that, that fits 100% the way that you just put that because like our methods were like lift heavy, do all these things like three times a week, like something you would look back now in the sports performance world and probably be like, oh, there's probably better ways to do that. But the, the how was always like that the how was always emphasized and why we did everything was always emphasized to, to a T. And he, he was always open about I'm not the best with methods. I'm not the best with like what we do. I, I, I'm the best with like how we do it like that. That's going to be our focus. We're going to become really, really good at that. And I think it's it's paid off dividends in the long run. And now if you can apply that with a person that does have the what, you know, and but now just not being so far rabbit hole in your what, so far rabbit hole in all these fancy methods that you're not focused at all on the how or not focused at all on the why behind it, that you, you lose everything. No, a hundred percent. I mean, the, the reason that we're even talking about this is because it's a difficult problem to solve, I think, in all fields. But notably in fitness and strength conditioning, there's a very low threshold to acquiring new methods. You know, you're acquiring them every time you're looking at an equipment catalog. You're acquiring them every time you read a book around anatomy, physiology, program design. 
you're acquiring more methods every time you get on a YouTube trip or an Instagram trip and you start going through all these different exercises, you're just accumulating more raw materials. But that's like going to Lowe's or Home Depot <laughs> and buying more and more wood and more nails, right? And more tools. But when do you actually start to build? When do you actually start to convert that into to value for another individual? And ultimately that requires you to translate your knowledge right into their movement. And that means you have to pass through their understanding. You have to actually have this ability to translate, to convert what you know into how they move in our field and how they feel motivationally about how they move. And so that, that next step, that last step is so critical. And that's where I think people will spend a lifetime, if they pay attention, continuously getting better. Because every athlete, client, or patient you face is a new challenge. And I think the longer you're in an industry, the more you start to realize that. And so your tools are only as good as your ability to use them and adapt them to a diversity of human beings. Yes. And so this is this is something I'm always interested with our guests on because they always come on with like this this bomb of knowledge, just like you just like dropped on all of us. How like how did you get to the point in your journey at a point in your coaching career to where you're like, oh, this is what matters, you know, because you you kind of have that whole growing up journey of going through and like thinking your your CSCS is what matters, thinking like the the exercise degree is what matters, you know, and you, you think you have all the answers and then. Was there a moment where you were like, wait a minute, like it's it's the motivation behind it. It's the person behind it. Like, how was that? How did you kind of turn the stone and then focus on kind of what you're focusing on now, which is the language, the motivation, the person behind the learning? You, you know, it's it's a really it's a thoughtful question. And, and it's one that requires a, a fair bit of reflection and insight to answer. And I can answer it a couple different ways. You know, when. It's the classic kind of onion example, right? That when you initially get into any industry, but here we have strength conditioning in front of us. And let's say you are you are following, you are shadowing, uh, you're interning under another coach. You're observing unavoidably from a thousand foot view, right? You're taking everything in. You're listening to what they're saying. You're watching what they're doing. You're talking to them before the session, after the session. And it's kind of like you're overwhelmed by this massive information. And so that's kind of like this outer layer of the onion. You see the whole onion, but yet you don't know what that onion is made up of. You don't know where that onion comes from, where it came from. And over time, you start to realize, okay, programming is a layer and communication is a layer. And if you keep peeling down, you get to what we typically call first principles, right? These underpinning seeds of knowledge that everything scaffolds from, that everything builds up from. And so one of those seeds of, of knowledge, seeds of insight that, that parlays into my area of interest is this whole idea of attention. And so how we pay attention ultimately dictates how we experience the world, what we can gain and learn from the world. And so attention starts to be this core seedling of, of insight. And if you know how to navigate and nudge and influence someone else 
their attention, then you start to have this unbelievable tool that we call coaching. Because coaching at the end of the day is your ability to take an insight that's in your mind, put it inside their mind such that they can use that insight to express their skill at a higher improved level, what we might call learning. And so for me as a coach, if I step back out, I started like most as an intern. I was taking in the whole picture, the whole onion, the whole enchilada, whatever analogy you want to throw at it. And slowly but surely, I tried to peel the layers back. And inevitably, I got to the point where I realized that the vast majority of what I was doing was focusing on methods, was focusing on programming, was focusing on knowledge of what, right? What's moving from a kinesiology and a biomechanic perspective? What's happening from a physiological adaptation perspective? And ultimately, I got to the point where, and this was around the time I was reading a lot of John Wooden, the quote, you have not taught until they have learned, started to manifest itself inside me. Well, how did it do that? Well, I started to watch my athletes more intently, and I would realize that there was a pretty large disconnect between what I was saying and how they were moving, in that I'd be on the sideline when we were doing sprint drills or in the weight room, and I'm just yelling out cues, right? By all accounts, they were good cues. They were cues that should help shape focus and help them move better, but ultimately, I was just a soundtrack in the background, Austin, I was just cueing whatever I saw to be heard. In many cases, upon reflection, that were shadowing me. But as I proverbially looked up from the program and started to stare at the person, rarely did I see those cues actually make their way into the movement. And even when I'd ask the athlete, hey, did that cue help you? Oh, oh yeah. I would just take that at surface value and that would be enough for me to sleep at night. But if I had truly been hard on myself, I would have recognized that their eye contact and body language suggested either A, they didn't hear the cue, B, they didn't understand it, or, or C, they didn't know how to apply it effectively. And so as this meta-awareness, right, almost as I drifted into the bird's eye view of myself as a coach, I realized that contained inside of me was immense potential, immense knowledge, but there was no bridge being built to get it from me to them. And that the vast majority of my athletes' improvement, Austin, was simply because they were doing the program, was simply because they were going through the exercises. And because that in and of itself is a teaching tool, a stimulus for progress, I assumed that my coaching was also a stimulus for progress, that my coaching was actually making a difference. But I came to a pinnacle moment where I realized it wasn't. At the very least, it was not effective. Maybe in some cases, it was causing people to overthink and make them worse. And so it was at that moment that I came crashing in to a first principle, a seedling idea. And that is learning is underpinned by how we pay attention. And as a coach, my chief responsibility is to capture, keep, and direct attention. And once I realized that, then I was able to start to study and unpack all the things that we use as a coach to influence, nudge, and direct attention such that the athlete focuses better and moves better. And when you start to stare down that barrel, down that insight, Austin, guess what you come crashing into? Language. 
what we say and communication being the primary tool we use to shape focus, which is to say shape how the athlete pays attention. I, I, I think I picked a really good nugget of the day then for you is the Jordan Peterson quote, the more, the more attention you pay to it, the more it becomes yours. And I, I love your analogy of like peeling back this onion because I think we got to see you like real life do that. You you talked about the, the programs and, and the way you peeled it back, you peeled it all the way back to language and like skills. And when you look at the world of exercise science, you would think like, you want to, you want to think any of that. You want to think any other fields apply to this. You want to think any like communication, like you want to look at any of that. Originally, you would look at exercise science. You would look at the study of the body. Maybe you'd look at some biology. And when you started to peel that back and just talk, it's like, wow, it's like, this field applies, this field applies, Ooh, we could take some business here, we could take some communications here and apply it all to our own field to try and get our athletes to where we want to get to. And I think, I think it just emphasized like how much, like how much wider we could go as a field to instead of so deep, if that makes sense. Well, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, the, the reality is the human body doesn't pick and choose what impacts it. Okay. Just because we're in strength conditioning doesn't all of a sudden shut down the mind, right. And shut down cognition as a key factor in driving how our physicality is expressed and to deny the cognitive psychological and social features that go into human development holistically is to deny one of if not the most important assets you have available to you as a coach and you talked about different different methods of language and different ways to bridge that gap that you talked about that, that, that the expert knowledge that you have and bridging that to that athlete that needs to understand that expert knowledge in whatever way he understands it and it, at this point and kind of my peeling of the onion, like I'm very much into creating the environments because many times like I, I noticed like what you were talking about is you get the cues and either it just makes them overthink or it's it, it just kind of like the nodding of the head and then they'll do it anyways. But if you put them in environments, it kind of naturally does that. I talked about to Ray Kelly about this and he was like, you have to have Nick Linkman on. He, he's going to explain to you how the cues can be benefit to this, how it cannot be like environment versus cues, but it can be environment and cues. So I'm kind of interested in your your journey and process and like how, how you, how you implement your cues into the environment-based approach. A hundred percent. And for those who are, are interested, I just did a, a little Twitter storm on this a week or so ago, you know, kind of around the idea of cues, you know, not cues versus constraints, right. But better cues and better constraints and, and very much so language is, is central to how an athlete interprets or gains insight from the environment. Uh, but, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. To, to explain how language, which obviously operates at a, at a cognitive explicit level, can benefit what one can get from a learning perspective from the environment. So if we're looking at how cues, which obviously operate at a cognitive level, in that the person is taking your language as a coach and then interpreting it, understanding it, and then applying it to how they move in an environment, it is completely normal to question at first glance, how does language ultimately help build better connections with the environment around me? And so to do this, we want to take a step back and look at how we learn naturally before we introduce this idea of 
an external source of information, in this case, a coach. And so let's use a dead, simple idea of learning how to ride a bike to explain these concepts. And so my boy just recently learned how to ride his bike earlier in kind of the COVID lockdown this year. And so how, how does that happen? How does a child learn how to ride a bike, uh, especially recognizing that the children are not going to be able to, nor do they have a desire to take a lot of coaching cues from mom or dad. And that was most certainly the case with my son. And so when we look at things like walking and learning to run and learning to ride a bike, these happen through what I call natural conditions of learning. And so what are natural Natural conditions of learning. Well, there are four major ones that, that need to be present for learning to occur in the absence of a coach. Okay. And in understanding how learning can occur in the absence of a coach, we can come to appreciate where a coach's responsibility lies. And so these are the four that for me are universal, that if these four conditions are present, someone will be able to learn naturally from the environment. And so number one, there needs to be a clear goal. When there's a clear goal to be achieved that is obvious to the learner, to the person, then that is one of the key conditions for learning to ensue. Because if we're going to learn something, there thus then has to be a goal that drives that learning in the first place. The second major variable is there needs to be a desire to achieve that goal. If there's no desire to achieve that goal, no one will deploy the motivational or attentional resources required to put in the effort to fail, succeed, fail, succeed, and thus inevitably learn. The third condition is there needs to be feedback. Well, if I have a huge desire to learn something and I'm very specific in what I'm trying to learn, i.e. the goal, I need to have some kind of calibration. I need a compass that is guiding my learning to make sure that I'm picking up information and I'm using it to get better at whatever it is I am pursuing. So an example of feedback in basketball is obviously literally knowing whether or not the ball went into the rim right? Whether or not I made the basket. Riding a bike, it's knowing whether or not I'm riding the bike or on the ground. And so natural feedback needs to be present. And then the fourth and final one is in the case of movement, they need to be physically capable of performing the skill. Now, that does not mean that they need to be physically able to perform the skill itself, but they need to have the physical resources on which that skill is based. So they must have the basic levels of strength and power, mobility, stability, so on and so forth. Okay. And so if these four conditions are present, learning will occur in the absence of a coach. Learning occurs as a co-creation between the perceiver that's call it the athlete, and that with which is being perceived, the environment. And so let's pause on that point for a second, Austin, because I think it highlights something really interesting. I think of coaching kind of like a coaching trinity, and that coaching is about getting the right information at the right time to improve my ability to pursue or achieve something. And so when I come into this world, I come into this world as a perceiver. I have sense-making machinery that allows me to understand, sample, and experience the world around me. But then equally, there is a world to be perceived. There is a world with information to be navigated. And so a chair, a chair by its very nature, teaches me how to sit. 
stairs by their very nature teach me how to walk up them. A bike by its very nature teaches me how to balance and ride it. And a skipping rope by its very nature teaches me how to have it navigate around my body. And so, so many things are a teacher in and of themselves simply by the way they are designed and the way they afford, this is the key word, our ability as the perceiver, as the human to interact with them. Right? A glass teaches you how to grab it by its very size and design. The way you grab a coffee, a coffee cup with a handle is different than the way you, you grab a cold glass of milk, which requires a more open hand. So we might think of this as kind of this intellectual motor program. No, the information to know how to move is in the environment I'm moving in. And so I cannot stress this enough that there are always two coaches present. There's you as the perceiver and the environment as the perceived. And it is that coupling that co-creates all learning. And Austin, can I just say that this is always present, that learning is always a dance between the athlete and the environment. The, the coach, the only thing the coach does, and I'm going to get to this in a moment, but let me foreshadow. The only thing the coach does is help the athlete see the world differently. Think about that. All the coach does is help the athlete see the world differently, which is a way to say, help them pay attention in a new way. And so what a coach does, this is not my phrase, but one that I love, is coaches educate attention. Think about that. We educate attention so that you as the perceiver can perceive something new about your environment, perceive a new piece of information that you were not aware of before. And in perceiving it allows you to interact with it in a renewed or novel way. I cannot learn to sidestep the defender I do not see. I cannot learn to catch the ball I do not see. Now, these are extreme examples, but if I do not focus on the source of information that is required for learning to occur, learning cannot happen. So coaches, by their very nature, we have no strings attached to the human body. We are not puppet masters, but invisibly the string we are pulling are the strings of attention to the degree that we can help focus, shape, and nudge it to renew, enhance, and advance the co-creation of learning between athlete and environment. So now back to my son. My son is five. He does not want dad to tell him what to do. He, he tells me that point blank. So when he's riding his bike, he tells me when to push him, when to let go, so on and so forth. But let's take a step back. Did, was he able to learn on his own? Let's go through our four preconditions. What was the goal? The goal was to ride the bike. The goal wasn't just to ride the bike, Austin. The goal was to be able to ride the bike faster than his nine-year-old sister. So the goal was very clear in his mind, okay? The desire driving that, right? Sibling rivalry, very, very high. Three, was there feedback? I I'm pretty sure everyone can remember learning to ride the bike and the first time mom or dad let them go. In my case, I go about 10 feet and I fly into a bush. The feedback is rich. Gravity is a you know what, and it will teach you very quickly how to balance on that bike. And then finally, I knew the boy was strong enough because we had, we had given him some time to ride the bike with training wheels. And obviously I could see that he could ride. He was just learning to balance and navigate. And so the four conditions were there. So I know I knew learning could ensue, but something started to happen. 
okay? He learned to ride the bike. He could balance it. He could ride it around the block, but he still couldn't beat his sister. And this was making him mad. And so what would happen is every time he would try to speed up the bike, he'd lose control. So he could ride it really slowly. But if he tried to speed it up to get into this kind of off the bike and in this falling off of the bike, he started to lose desire. He started to get frustrated. And I noticed then that these the richness of these preconditions seem to decrease. But notably, what was decreasing, and this is the key, what was decreasing was his desire to keep going. And it was at this moment that I naturally said, okay, I have to step in. I have to step in as this extra resource and help him identify what he's missing out on. What source of information, if he had it in his grips, would he be able to then speed up the bike without falling off it? And so what I noticed is the piece of information, Austin, he was missing was in the handlebars. He was not realizing that every time he tried to speed up, he was overturning his handlebars. Now, what I decided to do was take a verbal cue. I tried to take a verbal route to see if I could educate his attention. So what did I do? We're, we're a musical family, and uh, I do a lot of DJing on the side for fun. So I know he knows a lot about music. And so I asked him, his name's Matt. I said, Madden, show me what your handlebars are doing when they're loud. And so what he did is he started to turn his handlebars really big, really violently. I said, good. Now, Austin, let me be clear. Had he not responded to my question that way, I probably would have pivoted and used a different cue. But he understood what I was after. Then the next question I said is, well, show me what your handlebars are doing when they're quiet. And he kind of gripped them and he held them very still. I said, perfect. And I asked him a third and a final question here. I said, when you speed up, do you think your handlebars should be loud or quiet? With a big smile, he looked at me, he said, quiet. He said, exactly. And so from that moment on, he was able to say to himself, quiet. Or when I started to see him lose control, I could say quiet. And after a week, he was beating his sister. He was bombing down hills. And now the only reason he was falling is because he was trying to go down too steep of a hill over a curb. Okay. And so would he inevitably have sorted this out? Yes. But here's the lesson. Learning is always, always co-created by the perceiver and the perceived, the athlete in the environment. Ultimately, the degree to which we pick up information in the environment is the degree to which we learn how to move in it. A coach's responsibility is to recognize when the athlete is not picking up on the right information in the environment. They are not paying attention to the right things. And then we have one of two choices. We can either use our language to literally help the athlete point the spotlight somewhere new. In the example I used, I softly, and I, and I focus here on my use of the word softly, I softly focus my son on the handlebars. The handlebars gave him new information, and that information was the puzzle piece he was missing to solve his speeding up the bike problem. But equally, right, Austin, I could have used a nonverbal. I could have said, okay, what can I actually change in the physical environment that would force him to become aware of how he's navigating space with those handlebars? Well, I could have put him on the sidewalk. 
But here's the cool thing. I did put him on the sidewalk. Why the sidewalk? Well, the sidewalk doesn't give him as much room to swerve left and right. It forces him to become aware of a quick strategy to keep the bike going straight ahead. But here's the issue. When I did that, Austin, he started to get scared. His desire went down even more. So in that case, the environmental nudge that would have drawn his attention to the right things wasn't a runner. And so I kept him in the street. And instead of using that bottom-up change to the environment, I used the top-down cue. I used my language. But here's where we can get into the type of language we use. I didn't tell him how to solve the problem. I didn't say, keep your wrist here, your elbow there. I didn't give him the solution. I gave him the source of the solution, which is in the handlebars. His body was more than clever enough to solve it. And this is where language gets a bad name. Language is a very quick way to get people to overthink inadvertently by misapplying it as a solution. No, 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 no. Language should not be used as the solution. It should be used to guide their attention to the source of the solution. Very, very different application. And when you use language, as I've now described with my son, language itself becomes a constraint on attention in the same way that the environment by its very nature is a constraint on attention. And so I say it again, the perceiver and the perceived, the dance between them is where learning emerges. A coach's responsibility is simply meant to educate attention so the perceiver gets more out of what they are perceiving. Yeah, coach, that that was awesome. That that description of everything. And I think it, it comes back to like language because there, there's so many ways to do language and like your how big your why is behind your language and why you're saying the words and the way that you say them, like that emphasis. And it's like the the via negativia like approach to like not overemphasize, not like just scream like right away. Cause whenever he started to fall, you could have said something like instantly instead of rather like letting him try to figure it out and then intervening only when you felt like it was intervening. And then even then, like you said, like it wasn't just, just hold your handlebars. Like it wasn't just telling him the answer. Even when you decided to come into the, like, and start to teach, it was asking and, and, and giving like the least, the least amount that you could have given him to allow him to figure it out himself. And you, like you said, like you saw that light bulb go on in his head rather than you just telling him how to figure it out. And maybe that helps for a little bit, but it's never like that true light bulb moment for that athlete or that kid. Well, and, and one thing that you're highlighting in there, Austin is a meta technique. And that is using language in an autonomy supportive way. So you're right. I could have still said, Hey, focus on what your handlebars are doing. And that wouldn't necessarily have given him the solution. It would have simply drawn his attention to the source of the solution. But right, I took it one level away from that, as you rightly identify, and I let him solve where the solution is. I let him get the internal joy of figuring out the problem. All I did is put a little, a few breadcrumbs, so to speak, on the trail. I gave him a few clues. And that's why oftentimes I encourage people, when you give a cue, does it feel like a clue? And when a cue is a clue, you are supporting their autonomy you're going to help them get kind of the excitement of problem solving, but also you're going to ensure that in guiding their attention, you do it in a way where it's not overly constraining, overly controlling, where you say shoulders down, elbows <laughs> locked, wrists neutral, right? That is constraining language. 
We don't want to go there because ultimately that's not how we control movement. We don't control movement step by step, joint by joint, muscle by muscle. Our body schema, right? Our proprioceptive neural networks take care of that. All they need is a goal to be achieved, a problem to solve. And that emerges through how we pay attention and intend to move in an environment. And so our language should dabble in the currency of the environment. Rarely should a cue ever be just around moving a muscle or a body part, because ultimately, guess what that does? That takes us away from the environment. That cuts us off from the source of information we need to guide our movement patterns. And that is a dangerous route to go down. And unfortunately, one, including myself in the past, many coaches are sprinting down. Yeah. And then, and then you see that athlete that is thinking about every single movement they do and they just move very robotic. And we've, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, but I, I have a question on we expand your your teaching how to ride a bike example into the world of team sports to where it's almost like a, a, a co-experiment on the coach's part and the athlete's part now to where it's like, as a coach, you don't know 100% the right way to ride that bike. You, you're, you're, let's say you're trying to teach an athlete how to score in, in a, a team-based sport. Maybe it's football, maybe it's basketball, but th- there's so many options. There's so many moves and there's so many ways to accomplish it with that specific component that you're going to see different each time. How do you know that you're, you're, you're pushing that athlete in the right direction to learn the right way for them rather than the right way for you. Let's say like, let's say you really like a crossover step that, that works really well in the basketball court for you. And maybe that's not like that athlete's best option. Like what, how are you going about the, 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 the teaching and the, the learning when it's such a, it's such an open environment and there's so many options. Yeah. Well, I think embedded in the question is a lot of the answer, to be honest with you. And, you know, ultimately, the athlete has to be able to solve the problem. And there there are many ways to solve movement problems, as you've noted. But because of the commonalities and, and the universal nature of environments and the commonalities and the universal nature of the human body, there starts to be commonalities and universal movement solutions to common problems, right? So when I'm defending, let's say in football as a defensive back, there's only so many ways I can move backwards very quickly, right? There's a back pedal, but even then, if the back pedal is not fast enough, I have to go in kind of this crossover run or this diagonal run. And so there's only so many ways, but we have to remember that these movements are selected and they are co-created, again, by the constraints inherent to the human body and the constraints inherent to the environment I am moving in. And so there's nothing in that regard overly special about any of our movements. There's nothing inbred inside of us that says the backpedal is ever so holy or the crossover step is ever so holy. That just doesn't exist. These movements exist outside of us, Austin. They exist only in the relationship between us in the environment. And, and in many cases, there are multiple solutions. Like take, for example, some people when they're stealing, they're going from first to second, they can simply lift up their inside leg, 
put it right back down in the dirt and sprint. Other bigger guys tend to have to actually plant off that inside leg and cross over with the outside leg. And then that becomes the first dominant step into the ground. Both can be effective ways to go from first to second. But in that case, there are two different strategies one can use to, to achieve, in this case, the goal of stealing a base. And even the timing of how far and how long and how quickly I shuffle before I instigate the open step or the drop step is probably down to decision-making in the individual as well. So the nature of a given moment in sport, a consistently repeatable moment in sport will dictate how many movement options there are. And so I think as a coach, what we have to recognize is universally, what are the common uh, solutions to this given moment in sport, defending someone in basketball, defending someone in football, you know, uh, passing a soccer ball, whatever it might be, there is going to be a, a constraint around how many solutions. And then I think as a coach, what we have to be able to do is to create the scenarios whereby the best solutions come about and are co-created naturally. Here's then the key thing. How do we know it's working? That's the question you're, you're, you're really posing to me. And for me, the way you know it is working is the following, that the athlete is able to solve the problem on their own. The athlete is able to deploy the right movement solution on their own. If that athlete constantly requires reminders, nudges, the stacking of cues, that then starts to tell me, that then starts to tell me that they have not learned, that there is still an overt dependence on me as a coach. And so ultimately our goal, it goes right back to John Wooden, I have not taught until they have learned. And so the goal is to create the conditions whereby they can solve the problems in the absence of continued reminders. That doesn't mean that we don't ever cue or we don't ever use drills, but we cue, use drills and constrain to the degree that we can actually start to make that desired change and that they can own that change in the absence of our reminders. I love that coach. I know you have to go here, Sue, and then I'd love to dig a little bit deeper, but we should probably transition to our rapid fire round so we can get you through the whole podcast. And, and the first one is, uh, what are some of your favorite books or your favorite book for people to kind of dive into this field? Oh, goodness. There, there, there's, there's so many. I mean, you know, obviously, if we're talking specifically around how we can, uh, let's say, educate attention, we've been using that phrase a lot. I think attention and motor skill learning by Dr. Gabrielle Wolf is a must have. It's, it's a research heavy book, but it's well written and it's very practical. Uh, my own work, The Language of Coaching, obviously, which came out this year is more of a, a modern take on how we optimize our use of language to educate attention such that our athletes, clients, patients learn and their ability to express change on their own is robust and that they don't always have this overt dependency on us. And so those two, for those who specifically want to get into language, I think broadening philosophically to what we've been talking about, a book I recommend to everyone is The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway, a wonderful book written back in the early 70s that covers, again, how we optimize environment, how we optimize language. Don't be turned off by the fact that it's contextualized to tennis. Anybody and everybody who has an interest in movement and human performance will get something from that book. And so 
those three in the context of this conversation will help people become uh, better communication athletes, as Daniel Coyle once put it to me. Cool. Next one. Who, who is the guest that you think we should have on this podcast that can kind of take us deeper into this, this rabbit hole that you've kind of brought up? Rafe kind of brought you up and kind of threw you into this, the, the fire from this question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, a person that Rafe and I share as I would say a mentor, as an advisor, and he may have talked about him, is a cognitive neuroscientist who actually works with Jordan Peterson at the University of Toronto, John Verveke. And John and I are having more and more conversations around the nature of language and how language in and of itself is embedded in our physical sensory motor system. And knowing how to tap language correctly is by its very nature tapping in what it is to be a physical moving being. And if you wanted to deepen the philosophical discussion of this space, John Verveke would be a perfect guest. Oh, that might, that might be one of the deeper dives, Coach, we've had recommended. That that might be a good one. <laughs> and then, it just depends on the appetite of you and your audience. <laughs> I'm ready for that one for sure. Um, next next question, what, what's kind of next for you? Maybe it's in the, the next year goal. Maybe it's when COVID's kind of over. Maybe it's in five years. But what's kind of your next big project or goal you're, you're trying to accomplish? Uh, I, I guess it's two parts. I'm I'm trying to re-embrace my curiosity, just intellectually speaking. You know, when you when you write a book and it's it's been 10 years in the making and four years in the writing of it, you kind of have to inevitably shut down your brain to reading new stuff because you're you're in creation mode. And so now I'm totally inhaling as much insight and information as I can and spending the vast majority of my time studying philosophy. And you know, as we talked about earlier in the conversation, I'm trying to deepen my understanding of first principles where knowledge and wisdom and understanding you know, if you were learning how to learn where this ultimately comes from. And so for me, that is taking me on a deep dive uh, in a philosophical realm. But on, in, in a practical sense, I'll be bringing the language of coaching to life in a, in a full you know, deep dive certification in the next 12 months. And so that's going to be my next big, hopefully, uh, uh, gesture to the world and to our industry at large. Boom. And then the very last question of the podcast, and this is kind of when all the writing book stuff is over, all the coaching stuff is over, all the the teaching stuff is over. But what do you kind of want your legacy to be through all this? You know, I thought a lot, a lot about this one, Austin. And for me, ultimately, what I want my legacy to be is that Nick was a good person who pursued truth, honesty in an honest, truthful way. That's really what I want my legacy to be full stop. That's awesome. Coach, thank you very much for the time. I know you have to go, but this was, this was amazing. No, Austin, it was my pleasure. Thank you for some very insightful questions. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.